0: morning, everybody. <coughs> I have <coughs> a number of scriptures that I want to look at today, so we're not going to read a specific text. <coughs> so um, hopefully you will have a moment or maybe jot down any texts that we use that you can look up because... I want you to do something (coughs) for me. Um, I put it this way, I guess, this morning, (coughs) the early service. I want you to take me at my word that I don't want you to take me at my word. Okay? Now, here's what I mean. (coughs) We're looking at the event, the day of Pentecost, and the content, and what it means, and what it means for us today. I can tell you up front that there is likely <coughs> no doctrine in the Scripture more um, over which there's more conflict than the doctrine of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and so forth. There are all kinds of ideas around, and I can't know everyone's you know, doctrinal background here, and a lot of different teachings are uh, floating around. So I want you to all be Bereans. The Bereans were a city south of Thessalonica on the western shore of the Grecian Peninsula, And after Paul visited Thessalonica, Thessalonica, planted a church there, ended up writing two letters back to them. He was basically run out of Thessalonica. Um, And so he went south to Berea, and it says, and he went to the synagogue. He always went to the Jews first. He got a foot in the door with them because they knew the Old Testament. They had some light. Then he would almost, without fail, gather a few Jewish converts, have the majority of the Jews run him out of town, and so he would then turn to the Gentiles. When he went to Berea, the book of Acts tells us, it says, they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because it says that they eagerly, daily, searched the scriptures to see whether the things Paul was telling them were so. So even Paul, who in their midst healed, raised people possibly from the dead, did mighty miracles, they knew scripture even trumped Paul. So when they heard for the first time things from Paul that they would not heard, That us Jews, we Jews have been looking for a Messiah. He has come, has been ill-treated, was crucified, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and now through his name is forgiveness of sins. That was new to them. For some of us, the teaching of the day of Pentecost, we may have been taught differently or not taught at all. But I want us to do what the Brians did. They went to their Bibles. Um, I'll mention the two s- same people that I mentioned in the early service. They didn't get a Joel Osteen Bible, which assumes he has one. You ever read Babylon B? You need to get the Babylon B if you don't. Babylon B always has something about Joel Osteen and how his staff gets together at Christmas and buys him a Bible. Um, Anyway, don't go get a John MacArthur Bible study. Read the Bible. Look in the Bible. It's the Gospels. It's the book of Acts that talks much, speaks much about the day of, of Pentecost and its meaning, and the Bible interprets it. Study the scripture, nothing else, and see if the things we'll look at today are true. Pentecost Jewish feast was seven Sabbaths after the Passover. The Christian calendar moves a day, Easter, is our day of worship because it commemorates the resurrection. Fifty days following the resurrection was the day of Pentecost. And I mentioned several times that we have three great primary dates. Christmas, which is God for us. Easter weekend, which is... Or Christmas is God with us, Emmanuel. Easter is God for us, Christ dying in our stead and on our behalf, and for us, purchasing the possibility to be forgiven and born again. And then Pentecost, God with us, God for us. Pentecost, God in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, resuming his place in our hearts, what he created us for. So I want to say this, work on it a little more next week or so. The thing that bothers me the most about the neglect, largely, of Pentecost and what that day means and what was accomplished then and what it provides is how pivotal it is. I'm obviously not putting down or denigrating the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. Without that, we have nothing. But Easter made Pentecost possible. Pentecost proves Easter. Pentecost proves the resurrection. How do I know that? Because Peter used that in Acts 2, in his great sermon, on the day of Pentecost. When, after the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and the disciples speaking in languages that they didn't learn, but the vast group of foreigners, there's two verse list of different, it says dialects, that heard the words of God in their own language. These peoples speaking that what they could hear, they asked, first they charged them, you guys are drunk. Peter said, no, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. We're not normal drunks. He said, so they, they said then, what is this? That kicked off Peter's sermon which takes the rest of the second chapter. And at the conclusion of chapter 2 and the conclusion of his sermon, he says, finally, he answers that question. What is this? This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel said would come and that Jesus told us he would send if... He went back to heaven. Then he said, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, Jesus has shed forth this promise of the Spirit that you now see and you hear. That's why it is, I, I, I really come up short with words to describe how unbelievable it is that in most of christian Christendom especially conservative so-called bible believing churches pentecost is it's just glossed over we might mention it if we still have bulletins there might be something about a dove that's about all we know about pentecost something about a dove it is it's a scandal that we are so ignorant of such an important date, and I repeat, an event that literally proved the resurrection. That's why we need to elevate it to its proper place. Jesus told the disciples shortly before He ascended into heaven, He was speaking to them of the Spirit, and He said, He is with you, but he will be in you. That's a spatial thing. He's just saying that I am here now, and when I leave you and return to the Father, I will send the Spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I won't leave you alone. I won't abandon you. I will send a helper or a comforter, or someone who's called alongside to help. I will send, I will not leave you. And, but he cannot come until I ascend to the Father, and I will send him to you from the Father. So he did, demonstrating indeed Jesus did rise from the dead and return to the Father where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting his return. We, therefore, can begin to figure out that from other statements Jesus made, even before he told the disciples that the Spirit is with you, will be in you, early in his ministry, Nicodemus came to him at night and questioned him jesus was um rebuked him for his ignorance because he said unless you are born of the spirit you can never enter the kingdom of god now it tells us then that while pentecost was foretold by john the baptist and by jesus that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's also born of the Spirit. There's two roles, as it were, or effects of the Spirit's operation on my heart in response to faith. The first encounter with the Spirit is when the Spirit... Convicts me of sin. I feel a sense of loss and shame and dread. And as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, I sense the wrath of God abides on me. And I know that I am a sinner. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Then that same Holy Spirit enables me to repent. I can't repent unless He, quote, grants me repentance. He helps me to repent. He helps me to believe. He then assures me by the witness of the Spirit that my sins indeed have been forgiven and that I'm reconciled to God and that the Spirit, Galatians, Paul says, the Spirit of Jesus is sent into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, the word there meaning that spontaneous, endearing, loving recognition on the part of a little child of his daddy. We've all seen it. We see it, you see it here at the church. Little kids running in the hallway, which I know doesn't desecrate the place. They can run some. I, you know, I grew up when, if you ran in church, you went directly to hell. You did not pass go or collect $200. Um, but they're little kids. The hallway looks like, you know, it's a mile long. You'll see them here. Daddy, that's what that means. I'll send the Spirit of Jesus into your heart crying, Abba Father. Now, what does that mean? It means when I am converted, when I become a Christian, when I have Jesus come into my heart and forgive me and make me a new person, that day I have the Spirit. I already have the Spirit in my heart. I'm born of the Spirit. I already have the Spirit in my heart. Now the question is, if the Spirit comes into my heart when I am converted, what does the talk mean? The exhortations, the commands, the prayers, that those people who have been converted And by the word of God, have the Spirit already in their hearts. Why do they need to be filled with the Spirit? Why do they need not just the birth of the Spirit, but they're told, Jesus will baptize you with the Spirit. Does that ring a bell that, yeah, what? If I already have the Spirit. What's God talking about? Why is He telling me I need to be filled with the Spirit? It does tell us I can have the Spirit but not be filled with the Spirit. Now, <clears throat> we do notice this. And I, this is a point I need to give some evidence on. That the only people who are ever preached to, exhorted, prayed for, commanded to be filled with the Spirit are already Christians. There is nobody, there is no case in the Scripture where anybody who has not been converted and therefore does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in their hearts, there is no case where anyone who does not have spiritual life in their hearts being called to be filled with the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You need to seek this. You need to obtain it by faith. There is no place where someone is urged to be filled with the Spirit who doesn't already have the Spirit. can you see on the surface it seems a little confusing a little um, befuddling perplexing I have the spirit well the question can be asked then can we and some people seem to think this way I think we get a portion of the spirit in our hearts when we get saved we grow and walk with God and so forth, hopefully getting more and more of the Spirit. And maybe if we do concede that there is a further why-in-the-road work of God called being filled with the Spirit or being baptized with the Spirit, there's where we get the rest of the Spirit. And now we are we have all of the Spirit. Well, the Massive problem with that, why it simply can't be, is that the Holy Spirit is not a thing, a power, um, a force. He's a person. God the Father is a person. We know all about the mystery of the Trinity. One God eternally existent in three distinct persons the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the Person of the Holy Spirit. Persons can't come in portions. I can't receive a part of Jesus. That's impossible. In the same sense, you and I can't be part in the house but part out in the car. I'm a person, I am a being, I'm a whole being and we cannot inhabit or whatever partially. So it isn't that I have received part of the Spirit, have a portion of the Spirit, and therefore need to press on until I get the rest of the Spirit. That's impossible. So if I have the Spirit yet God keeps telling me you need to be filled with the Spirit, but we know we cannot have just a part of the Spirit and get the rest of the Spirit later, the only conclusion that we can come to is that the partiality, if there is such a thing, is not with God, it's with us. I have all of the Spirit of God when I'm converted, but full possession of my whole personhood is not surrendered over to God when you and I are converted. There still remains, and I want to make this clear. There still remains in our hearts a non-willing, I'm intentionally using that word, it's not an act of our will. It's not a decision we make. There still remains in the heart of, of a believer, no longer dominant, but still present, the bent to sinning, the harboring of self-sovereignty that I was born with, the excessive love of self, which I think it's probably at least a two-sided coin. It seems that sin began as unbelief. Eve was solicited by it was a solicitation to doubt God. Did God really say, did he really mean it when he said, you eat of that tree and disobey me and you'll die? That was a solicitation, it was a planting of a doubt. When she began to mull that doubt over and began to give it credibility, along with that unbelief also came alive A pride and an arrogance that set aside God's judgment and exalted my judgment. Because she believed she saw, yeah, that tree isn't bad. It's good for food. It's beautiful to look at. And my new friend here, the serpent, tells me that it is wonderful to make you more wise. I think I will substitute my judgment for God's judgment. And I will go ahead. So you have unbelief and you have pride. And that will always produce, number three, they reached out their hand and grabbed it and ate it. That's rebellion, disobedience. Okay, The hearts then of every subsequent human being that came into the world, inherited that moral nature, that moral resemblance. That moral resemblance, then, is what, we, is what drives every human being when they reach the age of accountability into sin. It's the whole problem with the whole world. And I, I knew, well, we might think, well, you know, there's got to be more, more problems than this. No, we have one problem. Everybody is born a, an excessively self-loving, proud, self-sovereign rebel. And I want my will, and don't you tread on my rights. Don't you dare offend me by calling me For instance, a mother, all of you childbearing people that are here today, on Childbearing People's Day, I said last week, sin will make you stupid. We can see it. Sin will make you dumber than a rock. And it is rooted in that, don't tell me truth, don't tell me logic, don't tell me anything that I don't want to hear. That's offensive to what? Me. That's rooted in every human heart. That's why we have the problems we have in homes, workplaces, and ultimately between nations. It's because we have 7 billion people insisting on their way. You can't have a society like that. You can't have a home like that. You can't have a country like that. Nothing, nothing, there is no institution that can overcome that. It will destroy and obliterate everything in which it's involved. So we can say this, if we can somehow eliminate people from all governments, churches, schools, workplaces, we can get along. But the moment you inject a human being, you have injected into that situation, how many you have, how many ever you have, who are insistent on their way. I'll have my way. If it tears up the world, I'll have my way. Now, just put a dose of that in marriages, between parents and kids, everywhere there are human beings put together in the same proximity, and that's what we've got. That's our problem. We only only have one problem. It's depravity. It's the bent to sinning. Now, when we get converted, the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and He empowers us to keep subdued and not bend to that inner inclination. There is grace enough to no longer be dominated by that. When it dominated me and I followed its impulses, that's what made me a sinner and separa- separated me from God and, and had me on the road to hell. When Jesus forgives me and moves into my heart with his, his spirit, I have the power, the empowerment, the grace, the strength to say no to that, even though it's still there. And when I said earlier that it's unwilling, you're not choosing to be double-minded. You're not choosing for that old undercurrent to resurface. It's beyond our ability to silence it. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. He said, I discover, not choose, he said, I discover a law, a principle within me that whenever I want to do right, something in here opposes me. And so I fail. I don't come up to what in my own heart I want to be and do. So he concluded, he said, I see then that I am not doing this. And then he has a long phrase. He said, it is the, quote, in me dwelling sin. It's a principle, an inclination within my heart that is beyond my control. It's deeper down that I can reach. It is stronger than mere self-will and discipline, can seem to exert against it. I can't, though I can stave it off by the power of Christ so they don't yield to it, I can't shut it up. I can't stop its persistent promptings. I can't get rid of the chronic undertow that is there that would seek to draw me back to a lifestyle of willful sinning. Willful sinning, don't want to spend much time here, but willful sinning, deliberate, known sinning, stops at conversion when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. Now, I'm not saying that it will never occur again that you lose your free will and can't commit a sin. We can and the frequency is often there. St. John said, I write to you, little children, that means Christians, that you do not commit a sin. He did, he's not talking about habitual. I pray, he said, for you that you don't commit a sin, an act. But if you do, we have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is representing us. And there's forgiveness, okay? But still, remember this. Just because there's forgiveness available for sin after conversion doesn't mean it is inevitable that I sin in word, thought, and deed every day, as we're told. So, by the grace of God, I can continue to walk with Him. But, I will discover, and the Bible, all of church history, and all of Christian recorded experience of the saints down through the centuries verifies that it is the totally common experience of Christians that sometime following conversion, I like Paul, I discover something that is contrary down deep in my personhood, down where, and here's where the heart of the human being, or what we call the heart, is it's the control room where I feel and I think and I choose. Down in that inner core is where I will also discover some kind of an opposing inclination Seeking to divert my choosing, my thinking, my feeling from what I know to be God's way. There is a contrary current. I do not agree with it. I don't prompt it. It is beyond my reach. It is inherited. Now, that remaining principle law, impulse, inclination in my heart is what God's talking about, what John the Baptist spoke of and Jesus when he said you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and really I've been failing here in this service to not include what John always included baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire Water symbolized the washing away of sins and the new birth. But we don't need another baptism of water. We need a baptism of fire, which, remember the disciples on the day of Pentecost, each person, approximately 120 of them, had a flame of fire resting upon their heads. Now that's a little hard to... Pull off. I don't know what magic you'd have to do that. Especially for those who might want to think that future baptism of the Holy Spirit requires us to have the same symbols that were there. We can't cook up a mighty rushing wind. You can't figure out how to get a tongue of flame sitting on your head. But what that symbolized, it symbolized purging. Purifying. Fires always purifying. And finally, the whole day of Pentecost was really summed up by Peter some at least 15, 16, 17 years after the day of Pentecost occurred. When in a great church council recorded in Acts 15, Peter summed the whole thing up. He said what Pentecost was all about. Our hearts, he said, were purified by faith. Purification is never accomplished by addition. Purification is accomplished by subtraction, the removal of something that is defiling, that is corrupting and polluting. When God out of my heart that center of resistance to his full sway over me and I let go of what I cling to in the sense of self-sovereignty self-determination my own judgment is better than his I find I can't try as I might want to, I can't commit over to God that impossible situation that's driving me crazy and I keep trying to interfere in it and all I do is set it back and probably short circuit what God's trying to do but I absolutely can't get to the place where I say, Lord, I'm going to leave it alone and I trust you, you can do better than I can. I'll leave it. We just can't do that. Try as we might, can't do it. Why? Because there is that lurking inclination here that I'm still running things. I'm I'm sovereign. I I want God to help me where he's a real good errand boy. Actually Jesus is a wonderful hired hand. I can tell him what he needs to do and he does boy he does it well too. As long as it's what I want him to do. But to say you have the total keys you have the deed to this house. Actually, you can burn the thing in the ground if you want. It's now yours. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. But I thought, Lord, I would do this. No, I got that plan for you. And that may be your whole life. He has a right to it. And there is, with that inner core of resistance gone, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's the result of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not that I get the rest of the Holy Spirit, but He finally gets the rest of me. That's what Pentecost is all about. It is cleansing that holdout portion of my heart. Now, if God has people who are utterly sold out to Him and are nothing but clay in His hands, what can He do? Anything. And 120 people on that particular day were no longer like the coward Peter 50 days before. I don't even know who he is. I've never seen Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. That same guy stood up in front of thousands on the day of Pentecost and preached a sermon that 3,000 people responded to and gave their hearts to Jesus and were baptized. You can't fix denying Jesus in 50 days. There is no video series or small group study that will help you fix that kind of a flaw in here In 50 days, it takes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, don't you dare leave Jerusalem to go out and preach my gospel until that happens to you. That's where we are. The question we need then to put to ourselves and let God put to us is first, of course, have I been born of the Spirit? And then second, have I been filled with the Spirit? Has God baptized me, has Jesus baptized me with the Holy Spirit and with fire? That's the question that we need to face. Let's bow our heads. And I want this to soak on you, the Lord willing. Next two Sundays we'll look further um, at this whole issue I do think we need some we need some amount of information before we can then have exhortation it's people have to know something of what God expects of them before we can say now you, you, you need to move here and mind God well if I don't even really understand what he's telling me I need to know that first but this is what I want to result from our time in these days leading up to the day of Pentecost
1: let's pray Father in heaven I am often struck of the simplicity of your word we don't get more of you we get less of us we don't get more of you You get more of us. And for that, every heart in this room, I know Lord desires that. But for the person that may be sitting in here this morning that has not been born of the Spirit, I pray, Lord, that um, I know your provenient grace is speaking to that person, and I pray that they would get that right today. There's no more important work that needs to be done than that right there to begin with. And for those of us that are journeying through this idea of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, I know this much for sure, Lord. Your Holy Spirit will also speak to those hearts throughout the next week or two weeks as we get to the portion of this series that Pastor Dan wants us to get to. And for those of us that have experienced the upper room, that have had their hearts purified by fire and have been filled with the Spirit, for that we give you praise. But remember, Lord, we need to remember we still need you. So no matter where the person is sitting in this chair, in this room this morning, I pray, Lord, that they would just be obedient to you, that when you speak to our hearts, that we would mind you, that we would behave, that we would not negotiate, but do what you tell us to do. And also, Lord, I pray this week as we go through our work week, that I know many of us read our Bibles and pray every day, Lord, but I pray this week that we dig deeper into the Scriptures that we dig deeper into your word so that you can do a deeper work in our hearts. Help us to be a church like the Bereans so long ago that go search the scripture, scriptures for your truth that we learn here on Sunday morning. So Father, I commit each person to you. And as we go, minister to our hearts as you see fit and help us where we need help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed, everyone. Have a great day.